Well, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, if you were here last week, uh, we just went through one verse, and uh, we're not just going to go through one verse this week. Uh, we did have an, quite a bit of introduction time to the book of Matthew last week. Um, I would encourage you, if you're uh, planning on sticking around uh, for the remainder of us studying through the book of Matthew together, go back and listen to the first message. If you didn't hear it, it'll give you a little bit of background information and uh, some helpful things to consider as we walk through the book together. Uh, but Matthew chapter number one, let's start by reading. We'll pick it up in verse number two, and we're going to go through verse 17 this morning. Matthew chapter one, verse two. Abraham was a father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, and Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations there. I made it. I practiced all week reading those names, and we made it through. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, uh, please help us to see the value, um, even in this list of names, Of course, it becomes more clear when we get to the end of that list. And we see Jesus. So if nothing else today, God, help us to see Jesus. But with that, help us to see your work for all these generations, God. Real people with your real faithfulness, Lord. Bless the reading and the study of your word today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I titled this message today, uh, sort of tongue-in-cheek, uh, just a list of names. And uh, of course, we're looking at the lineage of Jesus Christ as Matthew records it. And I want to start today's sermon with 
uh, a real quick critical question. Um, maybe you sense some sarcasm in my voice, but uh, this is a definitional question, okay? Your answer is going to reveal a lot of information about your character. Are you ready? When you read a book, do you read the footnotes? Okay, obviously I'm joking. That's not a real definitional question, but it is a real question. You don't have to answer it out loud, but uh, when I was in college, I had one professor in particular who was a stickler about the footnotes, okay? So he'd give us a reading requirement for the weekend, uh, you know, say 100 pages or something, and he would always give the caveat. The footnotes are included in the required reading. Now, the first time I heard him say that, I think I was maybe a sophomore, uh, my heart sunk. A lot with, along with a lot of my other classmates, I'm sure, because in some textbooks, the footnotes take up half the page. So if you can skip those, you can really zip through a lot quicker. And the footnotes are always in really fine print. So that was really discouraging. Um, it was sort of an unwritten rule in our minds that the footnotes weren't really part of the main text, so you could skip them to get your page count up. Well, as I progressed in my education, I had a lot of classes with this particular professor. And I, as I got more serious maybe about what I was studying, I started to understand uh, his emphasis on these footnotes. There was valuable information in those little hard to read lines. Uh, there was background information, support information, uh, other resources to consider and to aid in the author's argument. Uh, I began to re reading the, enjoy reading the footnotes now, this is going to sound weird, but I began to enjoy reading the footnotes almost as much as reading the actual rest of the text, and uh, I still kind of feel that way today. Uh, reading is kind of a big part of my job, or at least it should be, uh, so I continue that. I read the footnotes. So that's today's sermon. Read the footnotes. Let's pray. I'm joking again. Uh, I couldn't let you out that quickly. Um, obviously, why do I bring that up? Well, I bring it up because this section in Matthew's gospel that we're looking at today is similar, kind of similar, to the footnotes in a textbook or a history book. Now, the genealogy is not a footnote. It's, it's part of the text. It's part of Matthew's message. But oftentimes we, and I include me in that, oftentimes we are guilty of looking at the genealogies in Scripture kind of like we see the footnotes in books. Uh, we read through portions of the Old Testament, we get to a long genealogy, and we say, well, I guess I can read an extra chapter or two today because I can skip this part. And uh, they're tough reading, especially when the names are not familiar, but they do serve a purpose. And today's section of Matthew puts forth one of the big purposes of genealogies, which leads to the question, why are these lists of names so critical and important? Why are they included in Scripture? Why uh, people, particularly Israelites, why do they keep such good records of their family history? Well, it sort of started way back at the conquest of Canaan. Uh, remember how the land was divided up according to the tribes, uh, the sons of Jacob? Well, what were tribes in Israel but family designations? So in order to know where their homeland truly was, they sort of had to know their lineage. There were tasks that were ordained by tribe or family, specifically the priesthood for Levi. In order to rightly qualify for that task, a man had to know his lineage. Also, the transfer of property from generation to generation required a distinct knowledge of family history. In order to get your inheritance, you had to know your lineage. 
All of those things kind of come together. And when we come to the New Testament period, even the Roman census of the Jews was taken by tribe. Or think of Paul, who knew, matter-of-factly, that he was from the tribe of Benjamin. There's historical evidence that at the time of Christ, there was an incredible amount of attention and available information on maintaining a family genealogy. But our question for today is, why does Matthew include a genealogy? And maybe the more important question in your mind, why are we studying it? The answer to that is another critical part of Jewish genealogy, and that is the line of the throne. We spoke last week of the Davidic covenant. Uh, in simple terms, that promised that one from David's family would rule on the throne forever. Well, the Jewish people believed this. And even during the times when there was no one on the throne, say uh, the time of the deportation to Babylon, they kept track. They knew that one day this promise would be fulfilled. And if they were more intent, they, they knew the depth of this promise that one day this would be fulfilled in a messianic sense. So they kept track especially if they were in David's line, because they knew in their mind with every boy born in that line, there was at least some potential that he might be enthroned and perhaps God would be keeping his promise through them. I think that's exactly what Matthew has in mind and why he begins his gospel record with this list of names. Um, if you read in the four Gospels, really only Matthew and Luke uh, include detailed genealogies. And Luke, he kind of puts his a few pages in. Uh, but Matthew, it's front and center. When I was a kid, I remember a time <laughs> when I was being, let's say, particularly belligerent or maybe annoying to my mother. And uh, I don't remember the exact situation, but when she asked me why I was acting up, I said the common answer, well, I'm bored. So she gave me something constructive to do. She said, go copy down some Bible verses for half an hour. Now, in the moment, I probably saw that as some kind of a form of punishment, and I didn't put much thought into it. So I just started with Matthew 1. Maybe I thought that in that half an hour, I was going to make it through the whole New Testament or something. Uh, half an hour is a long time when you're eight or nine years old, or, or maybe... Uh, Whatever. I started with Matthew 1. Well, I got about 10 words in, and I looked down the page at all these names, and I said, man, that was a mistake. But uh, I was a stubborn young kid, so I kept up with it. Uh, hopefully at the end of this sermon, you don't look back at the time you spent and say, man, that was a mistake. That was a joke. You can laugh. <laughs> but here's the big idea for today as we look at this passage. This list of names teaches us that Jesus Christ is a real king, and his history shows his redemption in real people, in real people. And we're going to look at this in a few different ways. Uh, first, we're going to see some questions, some questions about this list of names. I mentioned that only Matthew and Luke give detailed genealogies leading up to the birth of Christ. Now, we're not studying Luke, but it's always good to look at the parallels and if you've been a student of the Bible for any time, or if you've read around, you know that they present these lists in two different ways. Uh, for starters, the two lists run in different directions. Luke starts at Jesus and works backward in history all the way to Adam. 
Matthew starts in history with Abraham and works forward to Jesus. Luke, as I said, goes all the way back to Adam, while Matthew only goes to Abraham. Um, I mentioned this last week, but it seems like Luke is really trying to place Jesus Christ in the whole of human history, while Matthew is trying to place him specifically as he relates to God's major promises. Again, the promise to Abraham that in his family all the earth, every family in the earth would be blessed, and the promise to David that his family would rule on the throne forever. Those are the noticeable major differences, but there's something else that you'll come across as well if you read them. If you follow both genealogies in the same order, uh, if you start at Abraham together where Matthew starts, uh, they follow the same pattern, the same order, um, all the way down through David, they're the same. They follow the same line, probably referring back to the same records in the Old Testament. But after David, they split. And that's always been a curious thing. Why do they split? They both have David clearly in the line of Christ, and they both end up at the same place. But they only converge at a couple names between David and Jesus. Now, the, the basic question is, well, if they're following a genealogy, shouldn't they be exactly the same? Shouldn't they follow the same names all the way down through? Why does, why does Luke go through David's son, uh, Nathan, and Matthew goes through David's son, King Solomon, because that's where we see the split happening. Now, I will say that some will use this as an argument to disprove the accuracy of Scripture, um, but there's plenty of reasons to believe that both Matthew and Luke were tracing accurate lists and records, but perhaps with a different emphasis. There are several answers maybe to this question. Uh, I'm just going to give you some things to think about briefly before we move on. Uh, Matthew, it seems, is clearly trying to follow the royal line through Solomon. That is, the kings who ruled. Uh, and then coming down through a list of all the kings to the deportation to Babylon, while Luke seems to choose a more legal bloodline. Now, maybe that seems like a distinction without a difference, but there is a difference uh, sometimes you'll have somebody fall in line for the throne, say King Solomon, who is not actually first in line when it came to family history. That's the case because Nathan was actually an older son than Solomon was. Either way, Luke and Matthew follow these two lines. Solomon was chosen to become king. So while they're both descendants of David and both can potentially produce heirs to the throne, one line became the royal line and the other became, well, the the cousins to the royal line. Another way to put it, perhaps, Matthew seems to be following the line of the actual kings and the descendants who would have been king, while Luke is following a more direct father and son relationship. Some have come to the conclusion that uh, Luke was following maybe Mary's line, back to David. And when you get to Joseph in the book of Luke, it's referring to him as uh, sort of a father or a son-in-law and really talking about Mary's line. That, that's a possibility. A lot of people will, will take that view. I think it might be accurate uh, because Jesus wasn't a blood child of Joseph after all, but he was of Mary, and Luke's gospel focuses greatly on Jesus' humanity. Regardless, uh, whatever conclusion you come to, here's the important thing. Both Matthew and Luke trace a line from David. Uh, all of these cousins are right in the line of the promise. And they come down through and they land on this little family in Nazareth 
And Nathan's line, the son of David, stops at Jesus. And Solomon's line, a younger son of David, stops here at Jesus. That is, these two parallel lines with, with potential for the throne find themselves exhausted in the same son of David, a, a son who had a mother from David's family and a son who had an adopted father from David's family. This son, of course, is Jesus Christ. Now, maybe that information was new or maybe it was old and boring. We'll move on to some highlights. This will be more exciting. Some highlights in the list of names. Time and patience wouldn't permit us to do an in-depth look at each one of these names that we have information about. So I want to give a few highlights. And I'm going to go backwards with these. Uh, so let's start with verse number 17. Verse 17 says, All the generations from Abraham to David were 14, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. We see at the end of this list, Matthew is very intent on including this note. He has 14 generations from Abraham to David listed, 14 generations from uh, David to the exile listed, and 14 generations from the exile to Jesus Christ listed. At first glance, you may say, well, maybe Matthew just made this observation and he found it interesting, so he jotted it down. Um, except that's not really the case. Interestingly enough, both Matthew and Luke skip over some uh, generations in their list. And we know they do because we have the same list of kings in the Old Testament. So they purposefully skip over a few. Um, as we read other genealogies and with specific purposes and intentions, we find that this wasn't really a nefarious practice or it wasn't really a sleight of hand. But regardless, in doing this, Matthew specifically highlights this number 14. Now, why would he do that? Now, I'm going to give a disclaimer here. Uh, I personally try to avoid numerology for the most part, okay? You won't hear me talk about it a lot. Um, I think a lot of damage has been done with people trying to insert modern things into the numbers that you find in the Bible, finding hidden messages and decoding prophecies to locate otherwise unknowable things uh, through numbers. Um, it doesn't mean it's all wrong. I just think it's, it's abused oftentimes. So you'll only rarely hear me speak of the significance of numbers in Scripture, and this is one of those times. Uh, I think the most compelling reason to why Matthew is interested in this number 14 has to do with the name for David. Uh, the Hebrew name for King David, when paralleled with their numbering system, adds up to the number 14. That would have been common knowledge. Um, is it a stretch to think that people would have been aware of this? I don't think so. Uh, Matthew is so clearly tying Jesus to the kingship, the throne, particularly David's throne, that in this case, I think he's making a very Jewish point. Uh, Jesus is the culmination of David's line. The 14s aren't the message, but they're kind of like neon lights that are pointing to the message. Do you see this? Do you see Jesus? Do you see how much he fulfills all these promises? The 14s are kind of like... Uh, they're highlights, as if Matthew were to highlight this in his text for the Jewish reader. Uh, also, noting another one of Jesus' roles as the great high priest, uh, there were 14 high priests from Aaron to the building of Solomon's temple, and then 14 high priests listed from that point until the last one mentioned in the Old Testament. 
So uh, well-studied readers of Matthew in his day would have known these things. Matthew is pointing them to Jesus, the ultimate king in David's line and the ultimate high priest. That's one highlight. Another highlight, Joseph and Mary. Joseph, Mary's husband, is interesting for two reasons. Uh, Like many people on the list, he was not a notable person. He was a carpenter. Now, not that carpenters are not valuable or significant. I'd like to think that they are. Uh, But he wasn't a high-ranking citizen by any record, nor was he from a significant place. Joseph of Nazareth wasn't a household name in the first century or the, the end of the last century B.C. And that's the case with really all of the descendants or most of them from the exile on. They're kind of an unadorned list of regular folk but faithful people. Uh, We're going to speak more about Mary next week. But she was also relatively unknown. Uh, Isn't it remarkable how God works like this? Also, the way that Joseph is listed here tips the hat to the next passage. All the other names in this list follow the, the same pattern. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah. The word fathered uh, can mean specifically father or it can mean produced as in a grandfather or a generation, a few or a few generations down the line. But either way, it refers to family. It refers to family uh, generations. But when we get to Joseph, the language stops and says, Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. So it gets to Joseph, and it's, it, it skips him, kind of. Matthew's really particular here. Leading into the narrative of Jesus' miraculous birth, which was a real birth, of course, there was something, though, significant and wonderful about it. Of course, we know that to be the miraculous virgin birth. So while Joseph gets in the list, Matthew's very particular about how he speaks of him. Another highlight. Another highlight. Uh, We have a list, a name in this list, Jeconiah. Um, The man Jeconiah is listed in Jesus' genealogy. It's it's one of the most interesting footnotes of redemptive history because Jeconiah uh, was a man, pardon me, who was cursed by God. Now, why is that interesting? Let's read a passage. This is found in Jeremiah 22. Thus says the Lord, this is speaking of Jeconiah, if you look back in this passage, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days. None of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. That's interesting. The fact that Joseph was a descendant of Jeconiah means that Joseph himself could not have been eligible for the throne. And any biological children that Joseph would have had would have been excluded by this right. Yet somehow, in his wisdom and might, God overcame the physical boundaries of this curse by making Joseph not a physical father of this new king or Messiah, but rather an adoptive father of Jesus Christ. Jesus was not Joseph's offspring, but he was the son of David, Isn't it just like our Lord to take a family which was cursed and redeem their history through a miraculous means? This pattern points us to the gospel in which our curse is redeemed through the miraculous means 
of Jesus Christ. Moving on quickly as we work backwards, uh, we see that Matthew highlights some women in his genealogy. He highlights four women uh, in the first section of his genealogy, and then five if you include Mary at the end. And this can't be ignored. It was, it was not unprecedented to mention women in a genealogy, but it also wasn't usual or normal. In other words, Matthew took the road less traveled in doing this, so he must have had a reason. So who are these women? If you read back through the list, you'll find them listed as Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and then the wife of Uriah, of course we know that, is Bathsheba. There are several ways to connect all of these women. Uh, all of them are fascinating, and I could spend a lot of time here, but just some, just some thoughts briefly. Uh, Tamar, she was the mother of twins in this list, uh, Perez and Zira by Judah. But we know from reading Genesis 38 that Tamar wasn't Judah's wife, was she? She was Judah's daughter-in-law. And if you've read that passage, you know that it is a chapter full of wrongdoing by both Judah and Tamar. Tamar played a prostitute, and Judah was looking for one, to put it simply. There was trickery, deception, and immorality all wrapped up in the act that led to the birth of these twins, which wind up in our list. And Tamar and Judah both find themselves in the line of the Messiah. And their wicked action produced children in the line also. And what about Rahab? Well, if Matthew is referring to Rahab of Jericho, uh, I believe he is, the one that we know about, she actually was a prostitute, as we read in, in the story of the Exodus. Yet she had a spark of faith. She was not Jewish. Yet she came to believe in the God of Israel. And God saw it fit to place her in this list as well. What about Ruth? Ruth was not a Jew by birth either. She was a, a Moabite, a Moabitess. Uh, her, her lineage was very interesting. But maybe more interesting than her lineage was the fact that her husband was dead. But in God's redemptive history, Ruth found a kinsman in Boaz to marry after the death of her husband. And Ruth, who was hopeless, now finds herself as a Gentile in the line of the Jewish Messiah. Now what about the wife of Uriah, as Matthew puts it? Of course, is Bathsheba. And we know the story of David and Bathsheba. Uh, if we assume that Bathsheba was a Hittite like her husband, uh, then she also was not a Jew. The Bible clearly records David's sin of adultery and murder, and in the illicit relationship that took place, there are, again, children in the line of Christ, both here and in Luke's gospel. Now, why these four women? Whether you link them together because they are outsiders or because they might have had questionable reputations, we can certainly say that they are there only because of grace. All four of these women, either because of sin or heritage, could have been seen as embarrassing to the Jewish history. People could say, well, they're not supposed to be part of this story. 
Yet God had another plan. And also, the fact that Matthew gives us these four women primes us for two parts in the birth story of Jesus. Firstly, there's a questionable birth involved. Jesus was accused all of his life of being an illegitimate son. Now, we know that accusation wasn't accurate, and Matthew goes to great lengths to show that. But regardless, to include these women is to make the point to Matthew's readers that things don't always happen as you think they would in God's redemptive plan. Secondly, a big thing I see is hope for outsiders. All of these women, except Mary, were outsiders in one way or the other. They shouldn't have been there in this list, which is interesting because right after Matthew tells us about Jesus' birth, he tells us about a group of outsiders who come to worship him. In fact, Matthew's gospel includes much hope for outsiders to enter the kingdom of this king in a miraculous way. And without getting ahead of myself, that's you and that's me. Moving on, another highlight in this genealogy, Judah. Very quickly, but importantly, why does, uh, why does the line come from Jacob's fourth son, Judah, and not his first? Well, do you remember the blessing of Jacob on Judah? In Genesis 49, we read this blessing, which says the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Or uh, some translations have, until uh, he to whom it belongs comes. Well, Judah's blessing, that the scepter, uh, that's the rulership, the line of kings. Judah's blessing finds its completion at the end of Matthew's genealogy in the person of Jesus. Just as David's lines are exhausted and fulfilled in Jesus, so is the promise to Judah. Okay, so we've had some questions about this list, some highlights from this list. Lastly, I want to see some takeaways from this list of names. What can be said of all this? How can we apply this list of names to our life today? Firstly, God works his plan of redemption in and through people. Dennis read this passage earlier from Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We find in Scripture that God's eye toward people is shaded with the lens of redemption. He has his eyes set on people. Yes, his creation is beautiful. Yes, the trees are vital and important. Yes, Scripture tells us the rocks could cry out if he chose. And yes, even your pets are precious and sweet. But God's redemptive plan works through, centers on, and is aimed at people. And as we have seen, it works through imperfect people and for imperfect people. How can that be? How can imperfect people be part of the redemption plan for other imperfect people? Doesn't that seem like, uh, pardon the expression, the blind leading the blind? Well, it's possible because the catalyst, uh, the fuel, the substance of the redemption 
is in the perfect one, the only perfect one on this list of names in Matthew 1. Of course, that is the King, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. All of God's history led up to Jesus, and all of his history since then is hopeful because of Jesus. Another takeaway. God, as sovereign, keeps his covenant promises. When God promised that one of David's offspring would rule forever, he wasn't just saying that to make David feel better. He said it because he meant it. And it was fulfilled and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In other words, God didn't circumvent history to declare Jesus as king. Rather, God sovereignly worked in history because Jesus is king. That promise took place uh, to David hundreds of years before Jesus, and there were many years where it seemed hopeless, many years where a son of David was not on the throne. Yet, the plan worked out, and it wasn't plan B. Listen, God's promises are not a band-aid on the tragedy of human history. God's promises are according to his ultimate wisdom, his ultimate power, his ultimate authority. The fact that his plans come to fruition is not evidence of just sheer luck or even coordination. It's evidence of his power and his might. And hear this. If God keeps his covenant promises in the past, namely that promise to David, That means he keeps them in the future also. Jesus, with his blood on the cross, purchased and inaugurated the new covenant, a covenant of redemption through his sacrifice, a covenant of eternal promises of life and light in him, a promise of eternal joy dwelling with him forever. Jesus is the sovereign king, and what he says he will do. Another takeaway. God doesn't bring perfect people into his kingdom. So if you're perfect, sorry. (laughs) You're missing out. In all seriousness, there is only one perfect person involved in the kingdom of God, and that, of course, is the God-man, Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus, every single citizen of the kingdom is deeply and inherently flawed. Every single person in God's kingdom has entered it by this covenant of grace. Their entrance purchased by the blood of Christ. Think of the history that we just read. From Abraham to Joseph and Mary, every individual in Jesus' line was a sinner, and some monumentally so. A perfect or personal family past isn't required to enter the kingdom, nor is it required to be used by God. If that was a requirement, none of the authors of Scripture would have been qualified to serve the Lord. Uh, None of the apostles would have been qualified to follow the Lord. None of the leaders in church history would have been qualified to serve his people. Even myself, as your pastor, believe it or not, would not be qualified if perfection was a standard. And you can ask my wife if that's the case. If you think I'm perfect, just hang around me for a while. Uh, Over the last six months... um, 
Sorry, but I've had to toss out the idea that any of you are perfect either. <laughs> Yet we have one hope and one thing in common. That our king does not use and call the perfect ones. Rather, he calls and redeems the imperfect. He causes them to grow in grace each step of their lives. And one day, when we enter the fullness of the kingdom, we will reach the end of our imperfect existence, having been made perfect by Christ. So don't be too put off by lists of names in the Bible, because after all, if you're a follower of Christ, you are on a list of names as well. If you're a follower of Jesus, a citizen of his kingdom, you are in the list of names of the redeemed. And God doesn't look at lists of names like we do. We look at them and we say, yep, that's a lot of names. Don't know much about it. God sees your name on the list of his redeemed people, and he's intimately familiar with you. Not only is he familiar with that, he loves you so much that he gave his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. None of these people were just a list of names to God. And even though they may remain that to us in our imperfect knowledge, know this, that at the end of that list is Jesus Christ, the one who uh, sort of fulfilled this list of names, the one who makes this list of names valuable, and the one who makes it possible for us to be on God's wonderful list of names, his redeemed children, citizens of the kingdom of the King.